0: The goal at the end of all of that sort of thing is that there would, the end of that sort of hard journey was that um, what we f- sort of figure out is transformation is something everybody wants, but it is a hard journey, and not everybody really knows how to do it. We want change, but don't know how to get there. And so the series we've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks, excited about what's today. I think this is probably one of the – I should tell you this before I even get any further. Um, first of all, my commitment to you in this message is this. We will tackle some hard things. Some of them you will not understand because I don't fully understand them. Okay, you ready? So that means basically we're all going to be a little bit more confused. And three, I promise I will do this. I will not wrap up the message with a little bow at the end. You'll be like, where are we going with this? Come back in two weeks. Okay, you with me? Those are my comments. So you'll be totally unsettled and confused, and then you'll go out and have lunch and go, I don't know where we went today. All right, cool? Good. All right, let's pray, and we'll get into today's confusing, difficult message. Jesus, we are so grateful that we are in a place where we can ask questions, we can wonder about things. We're grateful for people who have spent uh, dedicated parts of their lives to um, the ministry here. And Lord, we know that as we consider the really difficult questions of our life, there are things that we don't fully know. There are things that we're not, um, not 100% certain about. And yet, Jesus, you call us and you love us. You call us your children. You, um, you draw us close to you. And Jesus, today, as we consider what that might look like, might you speak to us might you speak to us in terms that are clearer, clearer than we could even imagine? Might we, Father, be people who are, um, who are committed to seeking your voice? Where we know that old habits die hard, and we want change, and we don't really know how to get there sometimes. Some of us are tired. Some of us have tried, and we're longing for a little bit of relief. And so, Jesus, for a moment, as we pause, sort of customarily, would you speak to us in stillness about the relief you intend to give us? And that you might give us the change that we seek. So, Father, we just give you a few moments that we might hear from you as you speak to us today, Jesus. Father, would you release us from the burden that we feel of trying to impress you? Father, we want to be people who live as your children, who are not overwhelmed, but free. So that be our story today, at least in some small part, maybe by just a degree, that we might live in a little greater freedom today. In your name, Father, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, when you came in, as, uh, as Jennifer mentioned, you got a, a bulletin. On the back of that bulletin is your outline. If you want to follow along there, great. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we'll be in Romans 7, but we'll dance around a little bit in there. Um, and uh, if you don't have either of those things, you're not sure what to do, or you want to, you know, you're not, just look on the screen. Everything you need to be on the screen. So whatever helps you to take notes, learn, interact with the message, the better. Um, so go ahead and do that. Now, as you're kind of getting settled and kind of finding a pen or pencil, or whatever else you need to take notes or getting your, you know, your iPhone ready or whatever else it is, let me just ask you this. Um, as you're growing, everybody has a list of these things. I mentioned it this week in the compass note if you got that. But um, what are some things everybody, every human being should do? What are they? Shower. Someone said shower. We appreciate it if everybody just learned that basic human trait of bathing. Okay, we just need you to do that. Okay, great. What else? Eat. I don't th- Most people don't have trouble eating. But, you know, like, in if you, if case you're wondering whether or not you should do that, you should eat. Next question. Okay, what else? Forgive. Now, someone, who, someone is a church person. We should forgive. That's what I do every day. I just forgive. All I do is walk around forgiving. That's just what I... Everyone else should do it because I do it. I just forgive people. I can forgive them because they don't, but they should do it. Okay, good. What else? <laughs> Love. Come on, people. Seriously. Let's try something that's not so Christian-y because I'm just going to make fun of you. Okay, what else? Yeah. What's that? Hold the door open for people behind you. Yes. I work on that with my 11-year-old son, of which you're his small group leader. So get on that. Okay. We just call it, in our house, we call it first to the door. If you're first to the door, you're last in. So he'll, he'll walk in close on my mom and stuff. I'm like, oh, you can't give grandma bloody ankles. and She doesn't like that, okay? Don't do that, son. Okay, good. What else? That's what I'm talking about. What? Yeah. Chew with your mouth closed. Oh, yes. I mean, that, oh, dude, that's the same thing. That also, Travis, if you could get on that with my son, that'd be great as well. Yeah, chew with your mouth closed. What else? Sleep. sleep. You should sleep. <laughs> just not during the message. Okay, there's like, if you didn't get your sleep... And just hold on. Anything else you should do? Brush your, more hygiene, brush your teeth, what? One more time. Work, Work. you should work. Yeah. Get off your butt, get to work. Okay, enough of this sitting around, okay? Do something. All right, now, good. Now, there's lots of things we should do, whether it's hygiene, whether it's go see a sunset, whether it's ride a roller coaster, eat a burrito, whatever else it is you think people should do during the course of their life. All of these things... Forgiveness and love, like all of you guys who went to the women's retreat. I heard you guys all talking there a second ago. Way to go. Okay. But all all of that stuff is general. It's all good stuff. I mean, it's all good things. But here's what we know. That the essence, really, of religion is we talk about religion itself. Among many things, it's about us becoming a better version of ourselves. Right? This is what religion essentially is. It boils down to one word. Should. Should. Which, by the way, having looked at this word over the past couple of weeks, over and over again, is like, what is wrong with our language? Okay, now, the one thing you can kind of boil religion down to in most people's experience is the word should. That there's lots we should be doing, there's lots of stuff we should probably get better, there's things we shouldn't be doing, there's all kinds. In fact, most most people, when they sort of get an impression about what the church is about, it generally revolves around that word. Because what their experience is, or at least their impression is, is if I come to church... They're just going to add that to me, okay, to say it a little bit more directly. Bear with me. Some of you I know are going to get an email. I'm going to get an email from you guys saying this. but And you've heard this expression before. But really what we think about the church for a lot of people is this is really about the job of the church is to kind of make clear a bolder sense of the list of shoulds in our lives. And then we'll be better at doing all that stuff. Essentially what we're saying is we already have a lot of stuff we don't do real well we're supposed to do. But then the church is going to add a greater list and the church is just going to should all over us. They're gonna tell us to should on our kids and should on our parents and should on each other and we're gonna I mean we're gonna walk and should all over the whole world. That's our whole plan. Just should the world right there. And we're just everybody go take a should and just walk out to the world and hand it out to people because that's what we do. We just should on everything. It's a big pile of should, okay? Now, somebody like, did he just say that? I'm gonna send him an email that says you probably shouldn't do that, okay? Uh, Some of you will be able to forgive me because that's what I, you know, whatever. Now, okay. The conclusion most people will come to, especially when you invite them to church, is their belief is, I'm going to be overwhelmed with this. I'm already overwhelmed under a pile of this already in my life. And I can't take it. And to add more to it is only going to make it worse for me. What people ultimately come to the conclusion is this. I can't really do this. I can't do it. I can barely do what I'm supposed to do as it is on my own. And then to come to church and have an experience where there's just more of it, I just really can't do this. I can't do it. That in some way or another, the, the, no one really, if they, even if they could do as much as they could, there's a sense about them that says it's just never going to be enough, no matter what I try to do. And so I stay away. Or there's another cycle people have in the church, which is this. I live as I ought for a little, bit, a little, a little while. I kind of do the shoulds. And then I sort of make a couple bad decisions, and I realize I can't do this, and I spiral into the most. Well, it doesn't matter what I do until I feel really terrible that I can't do anything else. And then I find my way back by my own force of will until I get back to an experience of should again. And then I kind of live in this cycle over and over again. You see, I think for us, when we look at the Bible, we go, that can't, that can't be all there is. It can't be what. where do we just come here for the weekend and then, I mean, this is all that it is. Because if that's all, if that's all that it was, I mean, really, if this is all that the church was, all I'd have to do for a message, for a church service would be simply this. We sing a few songs, and I say this. Stop that thing you're doing. You shouldn't do it. And then do the thing you're supposed to be doing. Let's close in prayer. That would be it. But we know that's not effective. In fact, we look at the Bible. We're looking at people. We're looking for someone in the Bible who kind of gets us. Because for a lot of people whose experience about church is one in which we see the Bible, we see the people who are in the Bible, we look at all, whoever that, whatever's in the Bible, we go, please tell me someone can understand my life. Please tell me that there's someone in here who understands what it's like a little bit to be me. Who understands what it is to live my own life. And there's a guy. What's surprising is there's this guy named Paul. Paul is a guy who wrote a lot of what we call the New Testament, the part of the Bible that describes really Jesus' life and ministry, and then it describes sort of life in the early church. And Paul wrote a bunch of letters to the early church telling them how to live out this kind of new faith that they've discovered in this person of Jesus and what it all means. And Paul's a guy who understands and has a great history of the idea of should. I'll paraphrase it here. He'll paraphrase this idea of should in one word, law. Now listen, this is a guy who has a long history of knowing what it is to live under the pressure and the power of should. So check this out. Here's what he says Romans 15, 16. 7, I'm sorry, Romans 7, 15, 16 says this. I do not understand what I do. Anybody ever do anything and they thought, what, what was I thinking? Okay, some people are like, yes, I'm not gonna tell you what it is. But you will be forgiven by the person who said you should forgive. Okay. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Sound familiar? And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, what he's saying is, all the stuff we're supposed to do, it's probably good. And if I do what I don't want to do, I'm probably saying that stuff I should have done anyways. That's all he's saying. Okay, with me, now? notice. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Anybody ever try to do the best thing over and over again and never be successful? Yep. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. A lot of the word do there, right? And what he's saying is over and over again, I can, I just, I, I've been trying my best to do all the things I should do, and he really is saying, I just can't really do this at all. Paul, this is the guy who has written the Bible, parts of the Bible. The, the, the church, he sent letters out to the early church. Early church leaders went, this is clearly inspired work of God. He, I mean, and he goes. I really can't do this. It's really hard. And maybe what he kind of hints he's hinting at here is maybe there's something else here that maybe this isn't the way we were intended to live. Maybe that just simply sticking to a list of a long list of things we should do isn't what God intended for us altogether. There's a guy who, um, who wrote a he's. Um, well, I'll give you his quote in a second. But this is a guy who is a, he's a writer for Esquire magazine. He, got, he wrote a book um, called The Year of Living Biblically. His name is A.J. Jacobs. This is him right here. You can kind of see his normal-looking self. There it is. There's A.J. Jacobs. Now, he wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. And all he, so here's what he did. is he took, all of, he took about 700 commandments in the Bible, whether they're New Testament or Old Testament, and he took them, and he decided to live by them exactly as they are. So here's what he here's, as he's walking through the streets of New York City. You can see him right there. There he is trying to live exactly as the Bible has prescribed him to live. Now, here's what the article in New York Times covering him says. In the year of living biblically, A.J. Jacobs attends to the soul, turning himself from a guy who is, quote, Jewish in the way the, the Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. <laughs> he's a very clever guy. <laughs> Into a follower of the ultimate biblical life. Now, notice what he's saying. The expression of what it means to live the ultimate biblical life is to do these things. This means spending a year strictly following a type list of more than 700 biblical rules, including the obscure, don't wear garments made of mixed fibers, uh, bind money to your hand, pay the wages of your workers every day, and even some of the more potentially awkward ones, which I don't have on there because they're a little bit kind of gross. Now, this is an article right here by New York Times. Now, here's what I want you to see. His impression of what it means to live according to the way the Bible has prescribed is to follow every single rule in there. And at the end of his experience, after all of what he did, he doesn't have then a, he never has a transcendent experience with God. There are things that he learns, he meets with different people who follow the different rules of the Bible incredibly strictly, but he doesn't, I mean his intent in following the Bible, living it biblically was simply to do everything as it was said to do. He even tells a story in one of his talks, you can watch it online if you want to see it, but he tells a story about how he, he he wanted to, he was like, he walked around with pebbles in his pocket so that he could stone an adulterer. And he sits down at a park bench and the guy says, he says, well, would you, you know, the guy says, well, would you, what about stoning? Would you stone an adulterer? And, they, and A.J. Jacobs says, well, yeah, you know, and he goes, well, I'm an adulterer. And, they, and A.J. Jacobs goes, because this guy's like, he's just like, I'm cheating on my wife. I'm literally that honest. And he goes, well, that would be great. Can I stone you? And the guy, you know, immediately took the rocks. I mean, he's trying to do this exactly, and he's imagining this is the fulfillment of what it means to live biblically, and he has no transcendent experience with God. He learns a little bit about himself, but maybe what he begins to understand is this wasn't the intent of the whole Bible, simply to do everything in it, a long list of shoulds. Maybe there's something else more to it. Now, most people will look at their life and go, there are things that are out of sync that aren't quite working the way they're supposed to work. And so I've got to figure out how to, I mean, I just got to figure out how to get everything back together and everything will work out. Now, here's the way I think about this. Most of us, including A.J. Jacobs, who has a very funny TED um, talk, if you want to listen to that TED talk on YouTube or whatever, but including A.J. Jacobs is that we're kind of diagnosing the wrong problem. This past, um, past Monday, um, I, so Amanda's car didn't start, and um, it's a, you know, it is our minivan, which is the heart and soul of our, of our family. And uh, it wasn't starting, And which, of course, everybody, I, mean, I don't know if you're like me, but as soon as something's wrong with the car, like, oh, it's a cracked windshield, I probably should buy a new car. I just want to put the money into it now, and then, oh, I probably should buy it. So I'm like, that's my first instinct, is like, but of course, it's, it's a little bit more like, no, I don't want to buy a new car, but I really do, you know? So the car's not starting, and I don't know what to do. So Maher, who some of you guys know is on our staff, who's, you know, in the Middle East right now, figuring out how we're going to partner and do some stuff with some of those the refugees and stuff. He's awesome. So he's got a cool adventure story he'll tell us when he gets back. But Maher used to be a mechanic, and so he brings his little computer over, plugs it into my wife's car, figures out it's, the, it's a busted starter. Now, this is a. This is a. The, now I did not know what to do because I opened the hood like all guys do. Oh, something wrong with the car. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely something wrong in there. Time for a new one. I mean, you know, like that's how. Now, all I knew, before I knew this, all I knew was that all I knew that what to do, all I knew is that the outcomes of whatever was wrong, were that the car didn't start. I did not know the problem until someone else who could actually tell me the source of the problem could come and tell me what was wrong with the car. So, inevitably, I decided to try and fix it myself. <laughs> Remember, I'm going from the guy who's like, oh, no, we should buy a new car, to trying to fix this thing. It's a process that you take of someone who's mechanically inclined about an hour and a half. I started in the morning at about 10.30. And finished in the dark at about 8.30. I had, um, I, had, I had skipped my own daughter's soccer practice, of which I'm the coach. I had, um, I had my neighbor came out in the morning and you know, did something. He came back, or it was his daughter. She, she came back and she was like, wow, you've been doing this a long time. And I'm like, say that to my face. I mean, right up here, say that to my face. And I go, actually, it's because I'm not very good at this. Now, the point is this. We, a lot of us are looking at the outcomes of things that are wrong in our life. And what we're doing is we're trying to solve that problem without dealing at the source of what's really the issue. And Paul's is saying is, I got all the law. Lo- it's not that I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I do know what I'm supposed to do. It's just really hard. And I can't do it. Like something is busted inside of me, but I can't figure that out. So I'm just going to keep, I- even though I keep trying to do all the right stuff, it's still not working for me. So many of us feel the same way. We're trying to do what we can and it's just not working out. Now Paul gives us his impression of the problem here, verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who does it, but sin living in me that does it. What he's saying is, over and over again, sin isn't just simply an action of things that, we are, that are prohibited. are prohibited. Sin has some kind of life inside of him. He's saying that there's something about sin that's taken up residence in him, which is fueling a kind of outcome in his life. And he begins to say, maybe this isn't just something on the outside of our life we ought to deal with. It's something within our nature that has to be changed. There's something that's broken It's producing outcomes. Something that's unbalanced. It's almost like sin is some kind of parasitic virus, something inside of us that's living and taking from us and beginning to produce outcomes that we never intended and that we keep trying to sort of deal with the outcomes only and never dealing with the internal stuff. So, oops, sorry. Like there's an unresolved part of our human condition that live, that prevents us from living as we are. Now, before we go any further, i got to back up a little bit. So, again, to try to further the confusion, okay, so bear with me. Paul is saying there's something inside of you that lives inside of us that's producing a kind of result that we don't want. Now what happens is for a lot of people, we live in sort of a paranoid state about this or a dismissive state about this. We don't really know what to do with this idea of sin living in us. Now let me just tell you, as Paul begins his letter, he starts it this way. I'll come back. When he starts his letter, he says this. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts his letter this way. He's going to talk about all kinds of stuff in his letter. And he's going to say, you got this sin condition when he gets to Romans chapter 7. He mentions it in other places too, but he's going to talk about it here. Now, what I want you to catch is this. He does not address his letter to God, to all who are loved by God, to be called to be his uh, to, to call it to be his sort of wonderful, sort of hardworking, sort of pseudo sinners who do the best they can, he calls them his holy people. The word in Greek is the word hagios, which means a most holy thing, a saint. He refers to his people in almost every one of his letters. He refers to the letters addressed to people called saints. Remember, we have this: uh, there's the sinners, and then there's saints, and he's calling, his letter is to the saints. Now he's not saying this is just to a few people who kind of keep the laws. He's saying this is to people whose basic identity is not their sin, it's something else. Those who belong to God, a most holy thing, a saint. So we have this sin condition, but yet Paul addresses his letter to people who are called saints. Then he'll say, he'll say let's see, then he'll say this even, even further. He'll begin to sort of talk about this, this principle, and he'll say it this way. It's so bizarre. He'll start talking about it this way. Again, very confusing as what he'll say. Romans 7:4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, also died. This is what I want you to catch right here. Also died. Which means this. I know. Stay with me. Also died. Which means there's something else to which people have already been declared dead too. If you are with us a couple weeks ago, you know these things. Here's what he also says. Romans 6, we are those who are died to sin. Romans 6, 14. A couple weeks ago. you Remember, you're with me. Some of you who were there. Sin shall no longer be your master. I had you repeat to me. Sin is not my master. Some of you were there. Sounded like you were zombies, right? Sin is not my master. And I had you repeat it with a little more enthusiasm. Now, remember... Paul's saying, "You got a sin condition that lives inside of you. You are addressed as God's holy people, and you have already died to sin." Is what he said in the previous. He just said it in the previous chapter, and he says, "Even more so, sin shall no longer be your master. Sin is not my master, right?" Now, he's saying all of this stuff, and still talking about this idea of, of, of not being you know uh, uh, not being trapped by this thing called sin. In the Bible, the biblical definition of freedom is always something is always from something to something else. It's never from captivity into nothing. So, you know, you have, it's one place to another. So people are being freed in the Bible. It's always from one place to another. It's from one king to another kind of king. It's always, it's never that it's just from something into the vast expanse of nothingness. It's always from something to something. Now, brace yourselves. This is going to be uncomfortable. Ready? Here's what he says. Romans 6. Don't you know, this is worth picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death. We talked about this just a second ago, right? You can be a slave to sin. Or to obedience, which leads to righteousness even gets a little weirder. Here's what he says. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Wait. That means we're slaves to something either way. And what we'll say in our own, in our own mind, what we'll try to under, we'll try to get our head around this idea is we're longing for a way in which that isn't. We just we're kind of like, man, if there's another, could there be like a third option? Like there's slaves to sin, then there's slaves to righteousness. Remember, righteousness is a is a word meaning the one who is as they ought to be. That's what that means. Not who one who, who does what they ought to do. It's one who is as they ought to be. Now. What well, we kind of go is, I like the idea of freedom. We're American. We had July 4th. We know about freedom. We have fireworks and everything on that day. We know about freedom. We believe in those who have fought and died and protected our freedom. We believe in that. We celebrate that. We honor that. And now what I hear Paul saying is, you're either slaves to sin or you're slaves to righteousness. That means I'm never fully, these are my only options. How about I'm just, how about I just, I'm not a slave, but I just choose to do awesome stuff. Here's what's really tough. This is, again, tough to swallow. The Bible will say, when I make myself my own master, my default will always be sin. If I choose to make myself my own master, meaning I'm submitting myself under nobody's will, not under God's will, then I'll always choose sin. Always. I mean, when you're by yourself and no one is around and you're totally in control of your life, you might have a tiny moment where you go, I've got it. But more than likely, the decisions that have tanked your life, the decisions in my own life that have taken me down a path for which I have to work my way back into forgiveness and regret and repentance, whatever else you want to call it, all of that stuff, those are decisions that have come after me because I chose to be my own master. The only freedom we really get, and really brace yourselves for this, the only freedom we get, Paul will say, is in choosing which master we want. You're like, please tell me that's not the only thing. I know. There is no third option. The Bible is a story of over and over again of dependence. It's one in which people who follow Jesus are people who willingly submit their lives under him. In other words, we make him the master. Going on. Romans 7.4, he'll say this. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law, so remember we already died to sin, now we're dying to the law, through the body of Christ that you might, because the law is just not enough to get us where we need to be, that through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. Belong to another. Remember that the language of attachment we talked about at the very beginning of this whole message. That everything that we're looking at in our lives is about transitioning our attachment from one thing to another. If we're really going to have a transition or transformation, it is that we transition our attachment from one thing to another thing. And what Paul will say is, you're, not, you're no longer a slave to, the, to sin. And you're dead to that thing, the law, all the shoulds, because they aren't ever going to get you where you need to be. And he says, now that you might belong to another you belong to sin. You belong to the law. Now he says, you got to belong to another one. You know, there's someone else to whom you ought to belong. Here's how it will continue on. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Whenever you see the word fruit, it's always the, resu- it's the natural outcome of the internal nature of something. So if you have a fruit tree, we have a lemon tree in your yard. The reason it produces lemons is because of the internal nature of that tree results in lemons. If you throw an apple into that tree, it does not make it an apple tree. Look at all the apples in my tree. It's an apple tree. That's a lemon tree. Okay. It doesn't matter if you duct tape them to the tree. It's a lemon tree. Now, what Paul will say is when we attach ourselves to Jesus, remember this is the introduction of Romans 7, by the way. We started kind of in the middle to the end. When you attach yourselves to Jesus, there is something that's happening inside of us where the source of the problem is to produce outcomes that bear fruit. Most of the time what we're doing is we're looking at the outcomes and going, we got to change those outcomes. And what Paul is saying is there's something that has to happen internally to us in order that those outcomes change. Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions, notice this, aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Fruit for Death, by the way, is my new punk band. You check out our album. But, I mean, listen to this. In the realm of the flesh, sinful passions aroused by the law. Now, here's what this is saying. I've told you some of you guys this before. One of the ways I could get high school students, back when I was a high school pastor years ago, I could get high school students to do almost anything I wanted them to do, like to impress their friends. And it still works with, like, my buddies who are, like, not high school age. Uh, I know you're comforted by the fact that my friends aren't high school age, by the way. Uh, but I could get people to do anything simply by saying, I bet you can't or I bet you won't. I bet you can't jump over this incredibly difficult swamp. It's like 40 feet, like the, Mike Powell, the world record holder, the, you know, long jump, couldn't jump over this thing. I bet you can't jump over it. Inevitably, I'd get five kids to jump into a swamp. Oh, I couldn't make it. Nah, nah, I thought you could. You know, whatever. Now, I could tell my friend. I mean, literally, you can try this with your own friends. Guys, if you want to just see the mind control power you have over your friends, try this. Just by going to them and saying, dude, I bet you can't throw your cell phone over that wall. And, they're like, and they'll say, like, I, what? That's, shut up. No, I, obviously I can. I'm just not going to do it. I, can, I don't want to waste the money. No, I don't think you can do it. In fact, I don't think you probably shouldn't do it. Because, you know, you know, you don't want to embarrass yourself right here. You won't throw it over that wall. And pretty soon, they're starting to actually contemplate. Well, you told me I can't do it. I'm going to do it. Paul's saying, you're telling me I can't do stuff? I'm doing it. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within us. Wow, that's quite a statement. Just simply by the prohibition of something, it makes me want to do it, which goes back to what he said we talked about earlier. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. To become the people as we are, the people we are intended to become, the people who are longing for the change we hope, there has to be another way. And this, what I'm about to say, separates Christianity from all other religions that are based, at least in some part, on the idea of should. With me? Here it is. But now, by dying to what, we, to what once bound us, there's the captivity language and the attachment language, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In the new way of the spirit. What he will say is, and this is what makes people uncomfortable who are just longing for a new morality who come to church, is that what has to happen in us is not simply an addressing of sort of new needs or trying to find... Stuff that we might want or try to do a little bit better. That kind of stuff. What he says is, the way in which you will have your life transformed is supernatural in nature. It is not simply a new list of things you should do to get your life back on track. Because those are good things. But it is that the internal nature of something is transformed. And the Bible will say over and over again that the only way the internal nature of anything is transformed is by the spirit at the soul level. In other words, the outcomes of your life that you're longing to see sort of shown or show up in your life are not going to be because you tried really hard to make them so. Because we know that all of the list of shoulds that are in our life aren't enough to get us to where we want to be. There is this new way of the spirit. And it starts with an acknowledgement of something, I really can't do this. This is the most difficult admission for capable, smart, well-to-do, wonderful, brilliant people, which is this expression, I really can't do this. And the Bible, again, is a story of people's dependence on on God who does for them what they cannot do for themselves. And over and over again, we have to get to a place in which we say, I can't do this on my own. And more than that, we'll get to a place we'll get to a place where we'll have to understand, I can't do this <clears throat> because I do not make a good master. I think I do. I'm in charge of my own family. I'm in charge of my friendships. I can hold things together. I can, you know, when things don't go well, I can paint over them really easily. I do this stuff really well. <clears throat> and the Bible will say, we're going to have to admit something. I really can't do this because I do not make a good master. The whole of the Bible, we talked about this even the first week of the series. The Bible is about authority. We continually are at odds with the authority that God has over our life, that we, choo- we choose to take authority. He goes, all right, you want to be in charge of your life? That's fine. Recognize you don't make a good master. Do it as you want. I'll always be here when you want to submit to me. And the way in which, tran- the way in which transformation happens is by The spirit. Now, you're going, please tell us what that looks like. Because I don't totally get it. We don't have time. (laughs) Totally serious. You're like, you're leaving us with that? Yep, I'm leaving you with that. Now, here's what I do want to tell you. You probably should not and probably can't read Romans 8 on your own. probably shouldn't do it. Okay, I just want to let you know, you probably can't do it. I know you think you're real smart and all that kind of stuff, but you probably can't read Romans 8 on your own. Okay, so, you know, I know some of you guys are like, I don't have a Bible. I know, that's fine. You probably won't steal one of ours. You know, it's probably fine. You probably think, oh, I probably shouldn't steal something from the church. Yeah, no, probably not. You probably, if you don't have a Bible, won't go online and just search for the words, Romans 8 in Google and see what comes up. Because, what I, because what's in there is what this is at least described in at least some detail about what it means to live life in the Spirit, but you're not ready for that, so don't. I don't think you should do it. Just, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try it. <laughs> you never know what might happen there. That's what we're going to talk about in two weeks. About what it really means to live a life in the Spirit. Because that's the only way transformation is made real in us. It's not by our effort. It's not by us trying real hard to do the stuff we should do. It's by something that happens within us, by being attached to Jesus, And his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I know there's a lot of people who are sitting in our midst who came today simply with an awareness of the things that they should do, and they're wondering why they keep going back and forth to those same things over and over again. They're longing for some solutions, they're longing for some answers. Father, today would you just remind them that you love them, that you call them your own children? And that Father, your intention is not simply to create a longer list of things we ought to be doing, but that your intention is to transform us. Jesus, I know there are people trapped in things that they that are that are things that are damaging to them and they want to be broken free of. Father, would you enable those people? To receive the prayer from our prayer team afterwards, or they come forward, or would they write it down on a, on a card and place it in the prayer wall? Father, we want this, there to be a spiritual intervention in their life, not merely a, another list of you probably shouldn't do those things. Father, we believe that there is power in your spirit that is at work within us. So, Holy Spirit, would you be at work in this place as we respond to you? We have great need, we have great fear. And might those things be met by your great love for us. So, Father, we will sing with full voices. We'll stop trying to be something to impress you. And, Jesus, we will walk as best as we know how, taking small steps toward you that you might transform us with your Holy Spirit. So hear us now, Father, as we pray and as we sing. Amen.
1: stand together this morning. As we respond, uh, I want to sing this this course of surrender. Let's sing this out. No longer my own All I am is yours All I am is yours I give you everything To you I belong Every beat of my heart The breath in my lungs All I am is yours Take these hands. Take these hands. I know they're empty, but with you they can. Beautiful beauty in your perfect plan. All I am is yours. Take these feet. Oh, but you use the weak, you use the humble, Lord, so please use me, all I am is yours. I give you all. Every beat in my heart Your breath in my lungs All I am is yours All I am is yours and we Lift our hands this morning and surrender I lift my hands up God, I surrender All oh, that I am for your glory God, I surrender to You. And I lift my hands up. God, I surrender all that I am to You, Lord.
0: bold prayer to pray our prayer set to music saying I belong to nobody with any part of myself except to you God that's a bold prayer we take those words seriously we sing them we don't choose the songs kind of arbitrarily we really do try to think about what's the prayer we want people to pray with boldness all I am is yours is a very bold prayer it's a prayer someone can only pray if they believe that that decision to do that thing is a really good thing and it's a word spoken in love to follow someone fully to submit yourself fully to someone else is a bold and courageous loving act I know today is one of those days where you go gosh what are we supposed to do (laughs) and all I want you to understand is God has loved you done everything to try to come and redeem you to set you free is what the word redeem means From a life of captivity to a life of being as the one he intended you to be, and it's not by earning it or by impressing him, it is by his spirit that transforms you. Would you hold out your hands? Father, we believe that the work that you do in us and through us is not simply by our concerted effort. Father, rather, we 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 understand or are learning to understand, Father, that what we're doing is the outcome of what's already inside of us, Father, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you enable us to be people of love and generosity, of peace and patience and of kindness and of goodness and faithfulness, not because we try to aim at those things, but because you cultivate them in our heart? Might the world be made different because we're people who are living out of the supernatural transformation that you give to us through your Spirit in our lives? Father, our commitment is to be attached to you. Because you've already attached yourself to us. We submit to you. All we are is yours. In your name, Father, we pray. Amen. Amen. So good to be together. Guys, make sure you hang out on the patio. I, they can take, okay, Cassandra, they can take a pumpkin, right? You can take a pumpkin if you need one, okay? Or if you feel like you want to give one to your neighbor, give one. But just don't take a bunch of them, okay? We need them for next service deal, all right? Enjoy. Hang out on the patio. Take a picture. Meet some folks you don't know. We'll see you guys next week. God bless you.